0: Welcome to Odd Lots. It's Monday, November 23rd. I'm Tracy Alloway.
1: And I'm Joe Weisenthal.
0: Joe, I've got a question for you. What were you doing to make money in 1999?
1: The summer of 1999 was the best summer because I think I made about $2,000 from just a, a summer job that I had. <laughs> but then I put that all into stocks because it was the internet bubble. And I basically paid for two years of college thanks to essentially what I did that summer. So That's amazing. It was it was a good time.
0: Well, I was making money, too, a little differently. I was still in middle school. I was uh, going to garage sales and selling old toys, and one of the things I sold was a tie-dyed Beanie Baby lizard. I sold it for $200 (laughs) to a 40-year-old man, and at the time, me as an 11-year-old, I thought this was amazing money, and I was rolling in it.
1: That is amazing money, objectively, for any age, selling a stuffed animal for $200.
0: Right. So why are we talking about this? Today, we're going to delve into what can drive seemingly rational people to spend hundreds, sometimes thousands of dollars on stuffed animals. We're going to talk about the Beanie Baby bubble. And we're going to talk about something more than that. We're going to talk about bubbles in general, the internet bubble, and the psychology behind speculative mania. So... Here with us today is Zach Bissonette. He's the author of the Great Beanie Baby Bubble Mass Delusion and the Dark Side of Cute. It's a book that came out earlier this year, and I just happened to finish it this morning.
1: Zach, uh, thanks for joining us. So, why did you write a book about Beanie Babies? So, and stuffed I, animals. Like
2: you, I, I was in middle school when the Beanie Baby craze hit, and I was kind of a nerd, and I was into like old books and antiques and that kind of thing. And every weekend, I would go to this flea market on Cape Cod with my mother. And we had never heard of Beanie Babies. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, that flea market was like 80% Beanie Baby dealers. And they were wearing like fanny packs and visors and talking just really, really excitedly about how much they were going up in value. And how this one they just paid $5 for was now worth 40 And they're not going to sell it this week because next week it'll be worth 50 And that was like that for about two years. And then all of a sudden it was gone. And no one ever talked about it again.
1: I just, I just want to say, uh, during those same years, that uh, my mother was dating a guy who was an antique dealer, and so I also went to a lot of flea markets <laughs> in New England, and I actually saw all the exact same thing. Where suddenly there were these flea markets where that used to be people bringing out their old stuff from their barns, and then it was just people with stuff down. Oh, and the, the
2: traditionalist antique dealers hated it. Yeah. <laughs> there was there was one guy I talked to who who he was so proud of this. He was a traditionalist antique dealer who had just railed against Beanie Babies. He would go on CNN. I would, I'm not even kidding. CNN would have these, like, debates between this guy, who they called the Beanie Meanie, and, <laughs> and the Beanie Baby experts, who were making millions of dollars, selling... One of them sold a million copies a month of a Beanie Baby magazine that she was publishing. And they would have these debates in this... In this a group of antique dealers in Indiana gave him a crucified skunk Beanie Baby with a certificate <laughs> thanking him for being a traditionalist who stood up for traditional antiques.
0: So this is the... Uh, amazing thing walk us through how the beanie baby bubble came into existence and how we at one one day actually got to the point where people were debating the value of stuffed animals on cnn
2: so it starts out with this, this very sort of eccentric toy maker named ty warner who dropped out of kalamazoo college tried to become an actor failed at that then became a toy salesman was wildly successful at that but then he got fired from that and decided to start his own stuffed animal company and he started to create these beanie babies initially because he thought at a $5 price point they would be irresistible and that it would help him as sort of a foot in the door with large accounts and that he would then be able to kind of upsell bigger stores on selling his larger stuffed animal line. And it didn't work at all. I remember talking to to, to the sales reps for Ty remember just there was no interest in these Beanie Babies. People worried they were cheap, they thought they looked cheap, they worried people would buy the Beanie Babies instead of a more expensive product. He was just not getting any interest in them but Ty Warner, the guy who created them, really really believed in this product and he combined that belief with an extremely sort of eccentric, obsessive approach to the product and, and the people who had, who had worked with him, which at the beginning was just his girlfriend, but, but she remembered when I when I talked with her He would keep her up until like four in the morning, (laughs) debating what color the ribbon on a bear should be. And then she'd think they would finally be done debating the color. And he would say, well, what if it was tied this way instead of the other way? And then they would have to go back through the iterations of different colors again for hours. So he had this really, really obsessive approach to the product. This is how the
0: retirement came into being, right?
2: Precisely. So sometimes he would come out with a product. And then a few months after he chipped a few thousand of them, he would, like, wake up in the middle of the night, basically, and decide that it should be a different color. So, like, one of his first Beanie Babies, not, not one of the very first, but one of the, the, one of the first was Peanut the Elephant, who was originally a royal blue color. And then after a few months of that, I think he chipped, I think, like, 1,400, I can't remember, 1,400 or so of, the, of this Beanie Baby, and he decided it shouldn't be royal
1: blue, it should be baby blue. And so the fact that they would get retired and never made again, there were never more than that, that's how they became collectibles that people would see as going up in value? Entirely accidentally. Because so th- this is happening before anyone
2: cares about these. His annual sales are like $4 million a year at this point, mostly not from Beanie Babies. No one cares about Beanie Babies. Then all of a sudden, this small group of people in suburban Chicago who lived on one cul-de-sac started collecting Beanie Babies. They saw them in stores because they were near where Ty was headquartered, so they, he had a big presence in stores there. And they decided they liked these Beanie Babies and that they wanted to assemble complete collections for their kids. And they became very obsessive. These, these were soccer moms. They became very, very obsessive with trying to assemble complete collections. And so they would call stores in other towns to ask them what Beanie Babies they had. And then they remembered this. They would realize that there would be, like, these weird variations. And these were the ones that he had retired or just changed the design of. Because he would chip a few thousand and then change it entirely accidentally. And they started paying each other more for these kind of beanie babies. And it kind of started this small market for them just in this town. As this started to happen, as this kind of starts in this small town, this woman, Peggy Gallagher, and her sister, Dr. Paula Brinko, had this idea, you know... We're just calling stores like in the Chicago area where this all started. But if we call stores in like other states, we'll be able to find Beanie Babies that are really rare that no one else has. So they go to start going local chambers of commerce and getting lists of all of the gift shops. The woman who's a doctor at the same time as she's doing this, she's doing this study on women who were like diabetic or something where she had to call Hospitals to talk to their researchers, and after she called the researcher, she would ask to be transferred to the gift shop to ask about (laughs) beanie babies so she could try to order the rare one.
0: But this is the part of the story that I love because we eventually go from this like small group of soccer mom collectors. Who professionalize themselves as Beanie Baby dealers and Beanie Baby market experts. I mean, one of them had a Beanie World magazine. She was a self-described Chicago suburban soccer mom. She had a magazine with a circulation of more than one million.
2: Million a month. And, and more Beanie ads Babies. per copy than Glamour. These were like thick magazines full of ads.
0: So people start seeing the price list for these beanies and they all figure... Prices are going to go up forever. These are good investments.
2: Right. And, and the stores that are hearing all of a sudden out of nowhere start getting calls from these out-of-state collectors are like, oh my gosh, Beanie Babies are really hot. It starts out as like two people.
1: Did, the, then- did the magazine that published the prices, because I remember I used to collect baseball cards yes. when I was a kid and there was the Beckett magazine. Yeah, and there was like a crucial avenue by which the baseball card bubble, which also burst, You know, everyone checked the prices each month. So, did the magazine for Beanie Babies serve a similar purpose? Hugely so. So,
2: there's a reflexivity, I think, to price guides where they impact prices as much as they report on them. And the first price list, which was created by this lady, Peggy Gallagher, which she started to circulate, she put an ad in like a magazine for other collectors saying, You sent her a self addressed stamped envelope, she would send you this checklist. (laughs) And she was like, well, what should I do with her prices? She just made them up, basically. She told me this, that she said, this one's rare, so that one should be worth $20. <laughs> these were not really based on anything. And then she kind of sat back and watched on like the AOL message boards as these price lists she was making up kind of became the the price.
1: And so talk about that, how the internet, and those are the early days of the internet helped stoke that bubble.
2: So th- this is a re- Beanie Babies were 10% of eBay's sales in the early days of eBay's. eBay disclosed in the risk factors to its SEC filings a dependence on the continu- that's crazy fact.
0: I love this fact. Yes.
2: and, and, and so People were getting computers, and Beanie Babies, more than anything, really gave people a reason to go on eBay and to do online trading, and actually just e-commerce in general. Not just There was also trade on message boards. In the early days of e-commerce, there were a lot of stories that it was not growing as quickly as people thought it would. People weren't comfortable with it. Stuff was too expensive to ship. With Beanie Babies, something that had a kind of weird, you weren't sure exactly what they were worth, they were easy to ship, and they were really hard to find locally, it brought people on to e-commerce in a way that other more mundane products like Pets.com were not able to.
1: So even though it was a completely pointless bubble of ultimately worthless stuffed animals, it actually did help. It had a beneficial effect on the development of these internet markets. Meg Whitman
2: has said in interviews that that eBay, and I think Pierre Omidyar said the same thing, that eBay may not have gotten off the ground without Beanie Babies.
0: So, Joe, I know you remember what the late 1990s were like. Um I mean, when we look back on Beanie Babies, it seems amazing that people spent all this money on them, all this time. We had uh one at least one instance of a guy committing murder, uh, because of a soured beanie baby deal. Do you remember how nuts it was?
1: Are you talking about beanie babies or just the late nineties and Both. 90s?
0: I mean I would the, say they're linked, right? Oh, they're absolutely
1: li- the the people who when they think back and they talk about the nineties bubble, it's often referred to as a tech bubble. Or the internet bubble or the dot com bubble, it completely misses the point. Yes, I was so so much. (laughs) Yes. It was so much bigger. It was such a big, it was a a, a sense of optimism about everything all at the same time. And so there's so many wonderful stories about people completely losing their mind. My single favorite story of the late 90s bubble was when a car dealership in Nevada. It was called Uniprime Capital Acceptance. And I remember this very vividly because I was on the message boards at the time. It was a penny stock. Maybe you traded it at this 10 cents. This was Joe
0: cents. Day tra- trading, right? I
1: was. They put out a press release that said they had a cure for AIDS. A car dealership in Nevada, they're like, oh, someone we've worked with or have we licensed this thing from a scientist. <laughs> they just straight up, we have a cure for AIDS. And, you know... Even in the craziest times, like that's kind of a skeptical be- belief, but <laughs> enough people believed it that the stock surged, it doubled, and then it doubled again because just on the possibility that maybe a car dealership in Nevada had found a cure for AIDS. Right. The people were so optimistic and of everything that it seemed not a hundred percent unbelievable. There was a, I mean, people talk about the internet stocks, anything that was uh, had that breathed on the internet. People are going crazy for one of my favorite facts is the fact that KTEL, the company that makes really cheesy compilation CDs of like 70s disco music, music they sold like infomercials. They sold their CDs online. Big whoop. The stock grew tenfold at one point, and then oh. over the span of a few months people were losing their minds. The other fact that I love is the fact that the Segway that, you know, didn't really take off, but people still go tours around. People really thought entire cities were going to be redesigned because of how the Segway got people around. So basically, it was a time of just incredible optimism about everything.
0: So... Zach, I'm curious in your book, you quote a lot from existing, you know, economic and financial literature. You quote people like Robert Schiller on the optimism that precedes bubbles. When it comes to beanie babies, if you could kind of pinpoint one thing that flipped it into speculative mania, what would it be?
2: It's people seeing prices rise. That that is what drives what drives speculative bubbles. Is that as soon as there's a, you know a, a, this insignificant phenomenon of someone who's trying to complete a set for their kid, mm. as soon as they pay a hundred dollars for a beanie baby that someone paid five dollars for, that's what sets in motion or at least can set in motion, certainly, this kind of chain, because that becomes a story. And, and Beanie Babies, and I think all bubbles are spread by, by narrative, by people saying, I bought this Beanie Baby for $5 and sold it for 100 Anyone who did that told a 1,000 people right. about it,
1: because it was so weird. So how big did it get in the end? Is there an estimate of what the total outstanding value of Beanie Babies was at the peak? Ty's annual
2: sales peaked at around $1.5 billion, um, and that was just wholesale. 250. Are minute.
1: there people who, there must be, but have a bunch and held it all the way down and now just they there, live in a house filled with... There is beanie. a
2: retired soap opera star in
1: Arizona, I, can't, I think,
2: I can't remember, can't remember it's been so long since I talked to him. Um, there's a retired soap opera star who lost his kid's six-figure college funds on them and has like 30,000 of them still in his home.
1: That's grim.
0: We talked about how these sort of bubbles begin, at least in the case of Beanie Babies. How did it end? Because it did start to fizzle out in 1999, and within a couple years, the secondary market value of thousands, millions of stuffed animals was gone.
2: This was one of the funniest things about the reporting on this, and I think there's a lot of very similar stuff with the reporting on the housing bubble and the internet stock bubble, is that I I would kind of pose this question to collectors, anti-executives, about kind of how this thing had ended. And they all had these really specific explanations for it, these kind of linear cause and effect things. Uh, you know, the, there was one person saying, oh, you know, the counterfeits really invaded the market and people were paying, you know, $600. And if it hadn't for pieces that turned out to be fake, and if it hadn't been for all the fraud, this, you know, it wouldn't have ended that way. A lot of people felt, you know, Ty got greedy and made too many, too many styles and overproduced them. And, and I'm like, okay, you know, Maybe, kind of, but, you know, if he hadn't done that, then would they still be 10% of eBay sales and we'd all be rich? I mean, these things end because they're stupid, right? Like, that's ultimately, they're they're unsustainable. And eventually, there is something that nicks them and causes that kind of of cascade of confidence that started it to just crescendo down. And and that's what happened. Um, There's this thing at the end of 1998. Everything's still basically going well. Secondary market sales, still good. Top piece is still valuable. Some overproduction on some of the newer pieces; those are stacking up a little bit. But basically, still a strong market. No one's saying this thing's ending. Collectors still confident. Magazines still selling. And Ty announces at the end of 1998 that on that on January 1st, 1999, all of the Beanie Babies will be retired, mm. and that they won't be made anymore.
0: Theoretically, prices should have gone through the roof at they that did, point, right? For a minute. Yeah,
2: <laughs> <laughs> they, they did for a minute, and people were very excited. And um, people were like, "What's going on? Is he going to do a different product?" And uh, and then he announced that he would do a vote to raise money for AIDS on whether people wanted to Beanie Babies to continue. And you would log in and online and do- and donate. There, there was some other stuff going on in his life, but where you could donate a dollar forty nine, I think it was, to vote on whether Beanie Babies should be continued. First, I'll raise the question of who would. Spend a dollar fifty to vote to end Beanie Babies. It's weird, <laughs> kind of like. But so he does this, and almost no one voted. Ended up just having to donate all the money himself because he, you know, ha- hadn't gotten as many votes as he claimed he had, and announced that Beanie Babies would be continued, and that all the new releases, there would be all these new Millennium Collection coming out. And no one cared, and the whole thing just every month after that the sales collapsed, and people started. to... So that
1: that caused a real crisis of confidence about the right. One and then of what causes? Crisis, <laughs> and then what
2: happened was so these retired Beanie Babies. I remember talking to one of the first collectors who was on her way back from speaking at a Beanie Baby convention as a paid expert, you know, like a keynote speaker on Beanie Babies, and she was at the O'Hare Airport, and she saw a stack of Beanie Babies that were still five dollars in the store, but were retired. And this was like mind blowing. I mean it, people thought it was a law of physics that a retired beanie baby was worth more than five dollars, and that that was just true and uh, I mean kind of, you know kind of like you know home prices don't go down. none right. of the models included that. none of their models include the idea that a retired beanie baby could conceivably still just be worth the retail price
0: hmm. um, One of my favorite sayings on Wall Street is that something becomes a bubble once the bubble bursts. Anything else is a great trade, Yes, right? You've just made tons of money. I love this, yes. When you look around the world, it seems like we are continuously seeing warnings about bubbles, again, in tech, lots of other areas, and financial markets. Having studied uh, the science of stuffed animals, do you have any wisdom for how we can spot bubbles?
1: Before they
2: burst in Before real time. Before they burst, yeah. yeah. I think the thing, just behaviorally, mm. is that when what is driving it, is entirely stories about how much money people have been making on it, that's something to be really concerned about. And I think any time you have a kind of surge of interest in new entrants into a field based on sort of past successes of other ones, there was a ton of that with the Mm -hmm. internet bubble. You had legitimate companies go public first, and then the next one, you know, this is going to be the next that, and that was a piece of crap. So I think,
1: well... To me, you know to bring your point to the current era, you know we've been hearing about a possible tech bubble for the last ten years. I mean, when Facebook was valued at a billion dollars, people said tech bubble and now it's worth hundreds of times that. But I did see an ad on Instagram this week that like was promising how to make your billion dollar app like a a service that would teach people how to make an app that would be worth a billion dollars, and that reminds me of like a oh, Telling stories just yeah. about the money love, is, like a, is a next level of
2: the euphoria. I, I always love those like J.P. Morgan Shoeshine Bowie stories about bubbles. Those, I
0: feel like those oh, are yeah, that's a great. Story. Like, I mean,
2: I remember when I was in high school, my bus driver, and it, this was dangerous because he was driving a bus <laughs> full of kids. And he had two cell phones, and he was flipping houses while he was driving, talking to his, like, real estate agent and his manager. And I just so – I always look for things like
1: that. Yeah, and uh, I remember in 1999, uh, when that year I had a summer job, um, we'd go to the pizza place, and they would also – while it was just a little pizza shop, and they would also have a, a rival financial network to Bloomberg on TV all the time. That was what the pizza guys were watching was CNBC.
0: Rival uh, network well said so Joe you actually managed to make some money from internet stocks How did you time it because it seems like the timing is key here? Lots of people did get rich off Beanie Babies and lots of people got really poor
1: it was really it was the best luck I've ever had I was trading through um, the basically Christmas break of um, 2000 and then I um, had to study I studied abroad in Switzerland in the spring of 2000 and before I left I sold all my stocks because, like, oh, I'm not going to be able to trade while I'm studying abroad. That just didn't seem plausible. and. Then the bubble burst while I was studying abroad. So out of pure luck, with no insight, you, no you wisdom. need to craft that into a narrative about your own <laughs> yeah. foresight. No, it was just the opposite. <laughs> just compl- <laughs> that's what, just pure luck. Yeah. I just happened wow. to sell like a couple months before the peak, so that, that that worked out well.
0: All right, so you made thousands off internet stocks, and I made two hundred bucks from a single Beanie Baby.
2: Yeah, but you got to cuddle it, so that's
0: <laughs> okay. I'm not sure. Um, all right, Zach, it was. Lovely having you on the show. Thank you so much. This was fun.
1: This is great. Thank you.
0: All right, Joe, we just had a really interesting, uh, entertaining conversation. What did you learn?
1: I actually think my favorite single fact was that point about the magazine and the relationship between seeing prices written down and seeing prices move. And then the effect that has on actual prices. I think that's a fascinating
0: point. Right. I just love the idea that this group of soccer moms in Chicago became market and tycoons. I had, and I hadn't
1: thought about that before this idea of there being, there needing to be a complete set of them. Yeah. Um, and so it sort of creates this inherent scarcity to mm-hmm. them that drives up demand. That was an aspect of the Beanie Baby boom that I had uh, not realized before
0: artificial scarcity is a hot topic in economics right now. Uh, Maybe that's something for another podcast. This is Tracy Alloway. You can find me at Tracy Alloway on Twitter.
1: And I'm Joe Weisenthal. Find me at at the stalwart on Twitter.
0: And if you want to follow Zach, he's on Twitter too at Zach Bissonette.
1: And thank you for listening to Odd Lots. Tune in next time.